Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coach's Corner. You're going to love my interview today with Dr. Jay Tita. We covered so much ground. I had so many more questions, so I'm definitely going to have him back on the show. So hit me up on Instagram after you listen to the episode and let me know what follow-up questions you want me to ask him in January. I want to wish everyone who celebrates Thanksgiving a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you took some time to be with loved ones. If you couldn't be with them physically, connect with them and really just tap into gratitude. Gratitude is amazing medicine and we always can find something to be grateful for. I remember in some of my darkest days, I'd look down at my hands and be grateful I had 10 fingers. It's just little things that we take for granted every day. And I'm incredibly grateful for all of you. I love this community. I love that so many of you have come and joined us at retreats and in programs and one-on-one coaching because you listen to the podcast. And I love hearing from you on social media. I love the emails you send. I especially love it when you leave reviews of the show. That means so much to me. So thank you. And most of all, thank you for being willing to awaken. Thank you for being willing, being willing to do the work and listen to these conversations and not numb yourself with reality TV and other things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little reality TV every now and then, but if you choose to come and listen to the show week after week, that says you are committed to your growth. And I really want to thank you for that because we need you. We need you. The more people who are awake and conscious and are able to see through some of the illusion that happens in this three-dimensional world, the better it is for all of us. And especially as a new mama bringing a new being into the world, I just, again, want to extend my gratitude to all of you who are doing the work to heal your inner child, because that makes us better friends, teachers, employees, parents, lovers, all the things. And the work that you're doing is making this world a more loving place for my little girl who's coming in March. So thank you. Also, this is the last week to register for Be the Queen. This is the program for women who want to call in their epic soul match, not just a soul mate, but a soul match. You have many soul mates, but generally only one soul match, the person who really is your most aligned partner. So go to Christine Hassler dot com slash be the queen. You can apply there. We have payment plans. If you're unsure about the program or have questions, you can get on a phone call with Jill. This is the last program we're teaching live for at least a year, maybe more. And I know this one is going to be really amazing. Just getting to talk to some of the women who have joined on the bonus call we did on 1111. Oh my gosh. These women are so, so ready. And it's incredible to be among a group of like-minded people who have similar intention, similar consciousness, and are willing to take similar action. There's momentum we get from joining a group and not doing everything on our own. And haven't you done things on your own long enough? (laughs) It's time for some support. So again, christinehasler.com slash be the queen. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Jay Tita. He is an integrative physician, author, and expert in the realm of natural health, fitness, metabolism, and self-development. He seriously has just so much knowledge and so much information and is great at explaining things. We cover so much ground in this episode. He spent the last 25 years immersed in the study of strength and conditioning, hormonal metabolism, and the psychology of change and success. He's written five books on metabolism and co-authored the exercise and sports nutrition chapters of the textbook of natural medicine. 
He combines his fitness knowledge with his expertise in self-development and mindset change and all his expertise in medicine. He writes and lectures extensively on the subject of lifestyle medicine, natural health, and mindset change to both healthcare professionals and the public. His latest book is a daily meditation on making life changes and based on his six powers. Human 365 is available on Amazon and he has a new book coming out in January and I will have him back to talk about that and answer more of your questions. All right. I want to tell you about an amazing sale that our podcast sponsor Organifi is having. So I've got an even better offer than your normal 20% off for this holiday weekend. You know, there's so many sales going on. And here's the thing, like just because something on sale doesn't mean you should buy it. I think a lot of us justify, oh, it's on sale. I'll buy it. However, when it comes to your health, when it comes to your well-being, that is always an investment way better than a new shirt or purse or all those kinds of things. So I'm all for investing in your health. So Organifi is literally having the biggest sale of all time. They've never done this in the history of Organifi and probably won't do it again. So today through November 30th, you get 25% off, but you must add my code at checkout, which is over it. So you go to christinehassler.com slash over it. You get 25% off plus free shipping on orders over than hundred dollars. Again, they've never done this before. Use the promo code over it and get all the goodies you want. They're gold, they're green, they're red, so many great stuff. So take advantage of this incredible sale, Organifi.com slash over it. All right. And now on to my conversation with Dr. Jay Tita. Dr. Jay Tita, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Christine. Nice to be here. So I read your bio, of course, before we started talking and you are an integrative physician and a lot of other things, which we're going to talk about, but I want to start there. Can you define what an integrative physician is for those of us who may not know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, if you take your family physician, the MD that prescribes and diagnoses, uh, that's me, but then add on to that, um, natural medicine supplements, lifestyle, exercise, nutrition, that kind of thing and also uh, dealing with chronic diseases and the cause of those diseases, you have an idea of what integrative medicine is. It's basically combining, you know, sort of the traditional pharmaceutical diagnostic aspect of medicine with the natural medicine aspect and the preventive aspect as well as the acute aspect. So essentially I do all that. Best way to think about me is your family doctor who specializes in lifestyle medicine. Got it. And lifestyle medicine is... Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's all the things that you need to do to keep your health, um, you know, um, to age well, to look good, to feel good, to live longer, right? So diet, exercise, uh, mindset, and stress reduction, all of that kind of stuff. Plus, you know, some of the natural stuff like supplements, herbs, and things like that. So I think this whole topic can be very overwhelming for a lot of people because there is so much out there. You just scroll through Instagram and one post is telling you, you need to drink celery juice. Another post is telling you, you need to just go keto and eat all grass fed beef. Another post is telling you it's vitamin D is the answer. Another one is telling you vitamin C is the answer. It's like, it's so, it can be so complex. And I think that's what keeps a lot of people from making changes, especially now in this time when our immune system is even more under the spotlight. And I think people are thinking even more about how they can keep themselves really, really healthy. 
one of the things that I really love and respect about you is you're super smart. You have so much information, but you're really good at breaking it down to the most important things. So if it's cool with you, what I'd love to do is just kind of chunk out each of these categories, you know, diet, nutrition, exercise, supplement, mindset, and go mm-hmm. for what are the, you know, cause I know it's not a one size fits all approach. That's what I love about integrative and functional medicine. Doctors don't look at every patient with the same lens, right? Cause we have to take into account a bunch of things. So I know that we can't do one size fits all approach, but if you were to simplify diet into like, what do we really need to pay the most attention to? What would you say about that? Yeah, this is a really good question. And let me let me just uh, frame this up for everyone so they can understand what we're essentially talking about. Part of the reason diets fail and lifestyle fails in general is that most people, to your point, try to outsource this information to people like me, frankly. And the fact of the matter is, is that no one knows your body or should know your body as well as you. And so what we really need to do is sort of stop being dieters and start being more like metabolic detectives. In other words, your metabolism is talking to you all the time and it will tell you what you should eat. So you're absolutely right in terms of this idea of one size fits all diets do not work Mm. and that we need to find what works for us. And the best way to think about that before we get into a simplified version of nutrition is to think about two frameworks that I use to help people understand this. Framework one is what I would call the individualized aspects of metabolism. And there's four of them. I call them the four P's. So what this essentially means is that myself, Christine, all of you listening, we are unique in four different categories. We're unique in our physiology, our psychology, our personal preferences, and our practical circumstances. And so what I'm going to tell you about diet, whatever I tell you, you need to filter through those four things. Physiology, psychology, personal preferences, and practical circumstances. We are all different in that regard. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about metabolism, there's four different aspects of metabolism we all need to be aware of. I call these the four M's, M as in Mary, of metabolism. And that is mindset, which is all the things around stress reduction. These would be things like sleeping, naps, massage, meditation, physical affection, time with pets, creative pursuits, time in nature, all these things that relax us. That's the first M. The second M is movement. This means we can't be sitting all day. We need to stand at times. We need to walk at times. We need to move around. We're built for movement. And then there's the two things we always think about, meals, what we're eating, and metabolics, how we're exercising. And so when we think about this conversation that we're getting ready to have, we need to realize these four P's, of our individual nature and these four different blocks of metabolism. Mm -hmm. So then when we talk about diet, you have to filter what you're eating through these things because most people say, well, eating is the most important aspect. Well, really all four of these are important. Mindset, movement, meals, and metabolics are all equally important. So most people who aren't getting results from their diet, part of the reason they're not is because these other elements aren't in place. But to answer your uh, question about diet in particular, it's actually pretty simple when you start to break it down. These are the elements of what I would call metabolic meals or metabolic foods. They should fill you up fast and keep you full for a long time. So they should control hunger. They also should not provide a ton of calories. In fact, they should be low in energy density, low in calories. At the same time, they should be high in nutrients. 
And the final aspect of this is they should not trigger cravings for food later. So they should control hunger. They should be nutrient dense and calorie sparse, and they should not trigger cravings. And there's a very easy way that I like to use to help people understand this. Soups, salads, scramble, shakes, and stir fries. It's, you can almost say it like a song. Soup, salads, <laughs> scramble, shakes, and stir fries. Soup, salad, scramble, shakes, and stir fries. And more particularly, this would be low-carb, low-fat soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. Now, there's not anything wrong with fat or carbohydrates. We need to move away from this idea that there are bad foods that we should always avoid. The only reason that we're not emphasizing those two food groups is because when you combine carbs and fat together, they give the bulk of the calories. They're not nearly as nutrient dense as soup, salad, scramble, shakes, and stir fries. And so what you wanna do is eat 90% of your meals in the form of soup, salad, scramble, shakes, and stir fries, and then add enough, but not too much, of starch and fat and sugar and salt and alcohol to make your meals livable and enjoyable. The way to think about this, Christine, is you wanna be thinking about what do I eat or not eat at breakfast that will make me eat better and less at lunch? Mm -hmm. And what do I eat or not eat at lunch that will make me eat better at dinner? Most of us see these meals as mutually exclusive, but what you eat or don't eat for breakfast will influence what you eat or don't eat for lunch, which will influence what you eat or don't eat for dinner. And so everyone is different. So when we choose what we're eating, we should be choosing this based on what will help us eat better later and into tomorrow, because most people are doing the exact opposite, right? They'll wake up, they'll say, well, I'm not gonna eat or I'll just have this tiny little salad or something like that. And then by the time they get to lunch or dinner, they are ravenous and next thing you know, they're binging on chocolate, cake, pizza or burgers or something like that. And so this is the way that I like to simplify this from nutrition. And of course, it's gonna be different for me and a little bit different for you, Christine, and a little bit different for everyone who's listening to this. And so you have to understand the basics, what I call the structure, and then you can be flexible in your choices, if that makes sense. Yeah, where does protein fit into that equation? Well, protein's huge, right? So when I say soup, salad, scramble shakes, and stir fries, I'm assuming that these are soup, salad, scramble shakes, and stir fries that contain lean protein sources. Now, these protein sources can be vegan or vegetarian, or they could be from animal sources. But protein is critical because when I say the meal should control hunger and cravings and be low in calories and be nutrient dense, well, most of those foods are going to be protein rich foods. For example, if I told you, everyone listening, if I said, listen, we're going to have nothing to eat all day, but one of these two choices, either five chicken breasts or five donuts, right? Now, if you eat those five chicken breasts, you're, you are going to be full. You may not even be able to eat all five chicken breasts mm. or throughout the whole day, but you are going to be full. You're going to have plenty of nutrients and you're probably going to be less likely to binge on cheesecake later. However, if you have those donuts, some people can eat those before noon. Uh, you know, I could probably eat those for breakfast. And they're certainly not going to keep you satisfied. Now, here's what you need to understand. Both that chicken breast and that donut, guess what? Each has about 250 calories. And so the difference between the chicken breast and the donut, despite having equal calories, is that the donut is almost all fat and sugar with no protein. And the chicken breast is almost all protein with no fat or starch. And so you can see the difference. This is why protein is so powerful because 
when you are prioritizing protein, it helps to create what I would call an accidental calorie deficit. It makes it very easy not to overeat. In fact, five chicken breasts in a day, that is a very low calorie intake, but fills you up as if it were double or triple the calories because five chicken breasts is roughly about 1300 calories. However, it feels like 2000 or 3000 calories to consume it. Plus it has nutrients and everything else along with it. And so this is the way you want to be thinking about it. Protein is one of the easiest hacks to use to control calories. One of the things I like to tell people, I'm like, okay, if you don't like counting, then let's just count one thing and one thing only. Let's just count grams of protein. You should be consuming somewhere between your lean body weight in protein in grams up to your body weight in pounds in grams. So for me, I'm 225 pounds. That would be the high end of my gram intake in protein. And my lean body mass when I subtract out my fat is about 175 pounds. And so my calorie or my protein intake should be somewhere between 175 grams of protein up to 225 grams of protein. Now, when I do that, I am not going to overeat. I'm also not going to be craving sweets like I normally do. Now, do I do that all the time? Of course not. It can be a little bit tough to do. However, when I prioritize that, I almost always have a low calorie diet by the end of the day and am not craving junk food later. And this mm -hmm. is the way we should be thinking about this. Mm -hmm. Well, and cravings are tough too because how much of it is what you're eating, how much of it is emotional, you know, because a lot of times these cravings are we, we want to self-soothe or we want to numb our feelings or all of that kind of stuff. So I think when when we're craving something, we need to ask, is this an emotional craving? Am I wanting comfort? Am I wanting sweetness? Or is this an actual physical craving that I'm having? And it's been really interesting for me in pregnancy because everybody is asking me, are you having cravings? Are you having cravings? I'm like, no, I'm just having aversions <laughs> to things, <laughs> which actually has shown me how healthy my diet is and how much it works for me because I think I'd only be craving things if I was missing them. And since I don't eat a lot of junk, um, I don't necessarily crave junk. You know, the only thing I was really craving sometimes when I was nauseous was like hangover food like greasy French fries or something mm -hmm. like that. But I've noticed that when, because in pregnancy too, you have to, well, you're advised to really up your level of protein, which proves your point of humans need protein. You know, to, to make humans, we need more protein. And even last week we were um, on a vacation and we would eat a really big breakfast because breakfast was included. So if something's free, I'm, I'm going to maximize it. So we'd have this big breakfast and I'd have an omelet with vegetables and some turkey bacon, and maybe a little Greek yogurt. Um, and I would be satisfied, and I would eat a smaller lunch and then a smaller dinner because I was getting so much kind of at the start of my day. And I used to do intermittent fasting. And although I was lean, I was always hungry. You know, noon would hit. I would just watch the clock, and noon would hit, and I'd be like, so hungry. <laughs> and I, I would eat things that were, you know, still nutritious and stuff, but not necessarily the, the best for me in terms of really controlling my metabolism. I always think I was going more into like kind of starving versus really optimizing my metabolism. But what you're talking about is really kind of experimenting with your body 
to see what works for you. And if you're starving and you just eat overeat, then you're, you're not doing it right. Am I summing yeah, that up, no, bro? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And you actually brought up a really interesting point. And I, I want to point this out to everyone because I think it's very important. There's a saying that I'm sure you've heard, Christine, and maybe, you know, many people who listen to you have heard it too, but it says, brain cells that fire together, wire together, right? So it basically means that, you know, if you have predominant thoughts, you'll tend to continue having those thoughts, which lead to uh, habits that are incorporating those particular thoughts. The same thing happens with food, by the way. So if you are young and you tend to go to, to pasta or uh, chocolate or whatever, when you are stressed or having a difficult time, those foods that you eat will do the same thing to the brain. So in other words, the brain will experience an emotion. It will then go, will go seek out a particular food and then you eat that food, the brain chemistry will change. The brain will necessarily see that as a soothing practice or something that lowers stress. And now it will associate that food intake with that particular emotional state. So just like we would coach someone on changing our thoughts in order to change the way our brain wires, we have to do the same thing around food. And so whenever we begin to do some of this work, we want to essentially say, what is my emotional state? What would I normally be eating during that emotional state? And what can I supplement that with to make it better? And protein is really interesting in this regard because protein stimulates a lot of the brain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, because the building blocks of those brain chemicals are the amino acids that we get in protein. And so protein is one of these things that can really stabilize that. So it doesn't solve the habit craving along with the emotion, but what it does do is bolster some of the weakness around brain chemistry that can trigger these cravings in the first place. And so it's not something that is gonna take cravings completely away, but it does make you start from a uh, place of strength rather than a place of weakness. And then the awareness of those foods and those emotional states and that stress, along with this good quality protein intake, are a really good way to begin to hack into cravings. It's mm -hmm. an important discussion that most people are unaware of that our brain does this. It will act a particular way or have an, a particular emotional state, and then it will uh, get used to the foods that we choose around that. And so there's a lot of different uh, things that we can do around brain chemistry in this regard. Another aspect of cravings is that highly palatable foods, foods rich in fat, sugar, starch, salt, alcohol combinations, also hijack the pleasure centers in the brain, making us seek more of those foods. So you brought up a really good point. If you really want to know what you need for your individual nature, you want to be able to be thinking if I have this particular thing, am I more likely to want burgers and pizza later or mm. will I be fine with chicken and broccoli later? This is the way you want to begin to um, deal with this. A lot of people will say, too, that cravings um, for certain things uh, are because you're missing certain things. For example, chocolate is rich in magnesium. So people would think that, oh, that's why I crave chocolate. Well, the truth of the matter is, is there's no real uh, research to tell us that. However, you being pregnant, right, are experiencing some of this stuff and you can see some of the wisdom of the body. But I do want to caution people to be a little careful here because your the greens, vegetables, kale, things like that are actually richer in magnesium than cocoa powder mm -hmm. and chocolate. And usually why the reason we're craving chocolate is because the salt 
sugar and fat combination that is in chocolate. However, if you really want to see if this works, you can move to something just like cocoa powder in water and see if it stimulates the brain chemistry in the same way to decrease cravings. But I just wanted to point that out because a lot of people will sort of make this claim that cravings are caused by something you are missing. And that may be the case, but more often than not, the reason you're craving something like chocolate is because the fat and the sugar, not because of the magnesium in it. If that was the case, you'd be, you know, you'd be wanting to go eat chalk off the chalkboard or something because mm-hmm. it has calcium in it or, you know, or you'd want green vegetables. Mm-hmm. So it is, Uh, Not necessarily that simple, but these things are definitely things that you want to be aware of as you're thinking about uh, nutrition and your unique nutritional intake. I love chocolate, but I actually just eat raw, unsweetened, 100% cacao (laughs) with no sugar or anything in there. And I notice for me, it's a bit of a superfood. I tend to get headaches and it helps, it actually helps me with headaches it it gives me kind of a um, not not a, a jump or anything. It just helps me focus a little better and just a bite. Like that's all I need, just a bite, mm. and it really satisfies that that sweet craving too. Um, but I also find I crave sweets if I'm dehydrated. That's when I'm like I just need to drink a ton of water. And sometimes I think I'm hungry, but I'm dehydrated too. That's another thing in pregnancy. I feel like I'm always dehydrated. (laughs) But, you know, it's really the whole experience of pregnancy has given me even more wisdom of like, okay, I actually don't have cravings. It's more showing me what I need to avoid, which I think is beautiful wisdom of the body because we hear a lot about cravings, but we don't hear a lot about, okay, well, what is your body not liking? You know, when you eat something, are you bloated? Are you gassy? Are you super tired? Like what... Your, your mind might like it, but is your does your body like it? And that's been a, a, a big part of my detective work, figuring out my own diet as well of like, okay, I my mind really, really loves Brussels sprouts, <laughs> but my body doesn't process it that way. My mind might really love a piece of sourdough toasted bread, but the next day I feel depressed. So it's like tracking those markers of what the body doesn't respond to well has also been super helpful for me. Yeah, that's that's incredibly wise and incredibly well said. And I'll add to that just for people listening to kind of want to make this um, even simpler for you. One of the things that I often talk about is the idea of biofeedback, which is what Christine's telling us all about. She's tapped in to her biofeedback. Every time she eats or doesn't eat something, her body is talking to her and she's learned to decipher those clues. So this is something that all of you listening can do as well. There's a funny little acronym that I'm famous for. It goes sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, S-H-M-E-C or SHMEC, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. These are biofeedback sensations that what you eat will either keep your sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, your schmeck in check, or knock it out of check. So the right foods for you are going to keep your schmeck in check. The wrong foods are going to throw those things out of check. And this is a very easy way for you to begin to cipher what is working for your body. Is my sleep, my hunger, my mood, my energy, my cravings better or worse based on these particular choices I'm making around my diet? There's really two different things that are required to lose weight, look good, feel better, function better, and live longer. And that is a low-calorie diet that is nutrient-dense and hormonal balance in a sense. So the calorie deficit is you'll know you have that if you're losing weight or maintaining 
an optimal body composition. However, how do we uh, deal with the hormonal aspects of this? Well, we deal with it through biofeedback. So you know you're getting the hormone, the hormones balanced when your schmeck is in check. This is the way you sort of listen to this. And by the way, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings are only some of the biofeedback. You also have exercise performance, exercise recovery, menses, libido, um, digestive function, and signs and symptoms. You mentioned headache and digestive upset. These are also part of this Schmeck effect in a sense. And so really, if you want to be um, really doing a service to your body, you really want to be tapping into these hormonal biofeedback sensations. So you said that beautifully. And I think most people who are paying attention slowly but surely start to figure this out. And this is really the way we should be doing nutrition, not just these off the shelf, you know, extreme diets that may or may not work for you and your biochemistry and do and things change too based on your metabolic state. Like right now, you're in a whole different metabolic state, mm -hmm. you know, given the fact of, you know, that you're pregnant and whatever trimester you're in as well is going to impact that. And then that's going to change a little bit with breastfeeding and everything else. And of course, women in particular, um, compared to men, go through about four to five stages of hormonal uh, metabolic uniqueness throughout their life. Um, four, if you don't get pregnant, five, if you do get pregnant, men only go through two. And this is a whole other thing that when we're going to talk about this idea of deciphering, uh, you know, the hormonal biochemistry, you know, women have been treated exactly the same as men in medicine since pretty much day one. And it's still mostly the case. However, there is a big difference in female physiology versus male physiology. And therefore, women also need to be paying attention to this hormonal effects. So sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. Most women will even tell you it changes around menses. You're telling us it has changed around pregnancy. These things are incredibly important if you really want to understand how to eat and live for your unique metabolic type. Well, I want to talk about metabolic types and metabolism in a second. Um, I just want to go back because the conversation about protein, I think a lot of people, especially people that don't love maybe are they vegetarian, vegan, or just don't love consuming a lot of animal product. What are some other good sources of protein? Cause I am not a huge fan of protein powders cause I know too mm -hmm. much about the quality of most yep. of them and all the shit they put in there. And yeah. Um, so can you, especially for vegans or vegetarians out there, just those of us that just are like, I can't eat another piece of chicken or Turkey or whatever. Yeah. What are some other ways we can get protein that most people might not think of? Yeah, well, vegans and vegetarians, this is going to surprise a lot of people, but they have a, a really big advantage over meat eaters in one aspect. And so when I think about hunger control, I think protein, fiber and water. OK, so whereas meat eaters can really amp up the protein intake and oftentimes don't do well on the fiber intake, vegans and vegetarians can really up the fiber and water intake. Think about it. Non-starchy vegetables and low sugar fruits, they're very rich in fiber and also very rich in water, which have the same hunger suppression effect as protein. So the first rule is if you are a vegan or vegetarian, which by the way, I was for a very long time and still have uh, moral concerns over eating animals. Um, I just feel better when I do, but many people don't. Many people feel better when they don't. You can focus on fiber and water. Now, here's the big mistake a lot of uh, vegans and vegetarians make. They're not actually vegans and vegetarians. They're more like carbotarians mm. and carbons. In other words, they eat mostly starch, 
rather than vegetables. In fact, I know meat eaters like paleo you know, eaters who eat more vegetables than a lot of vegans and vegetarians. So the big fix for vegan and, vegans and vegetarians is first to really be a vegan and a vegetarian and not a starchin or a starchitarian. In other words, eat most of your food through vegetables instead of starches. This is going to be one of the first things to do. That's going to give you the fiber benefit. And then when we look at protein, then you want to basically eat starches and things like that that are high in protein and fiber. For example, lentils and legumes are a really good one. Yes, they have starch in them, but they also have a lot of protein and a lot of fiber as well. And so you can basically begin to add these things in. And the truth of the matter is, we don't really need as much protein. Like when people hear me say, well, you should be eating protein in terms of your lean body mass in pounds up to your body weight in pounds. This is true for very obese people who can't shut off hunger and for athletes. But for people who are just living a natural, healthy life, many of them don't need anywhere near this amount of protein, especially if they're getting fiber and water intake as well and eating plenty of legumes and things like that. This is where the vegan and vegetarians should focus their attention, focus it on fiber and water, and then look at all the natural sources that you can get good quality protein that also don't deliver a whole lot of starch and fat if you're trying to look good and lose weight. Now, this is not the case for everyone because not everyone has weight concerns, but we do live in an environment where most people are overweight. And believe it or not, a lot of people don't realize this, but when you look at the research, vegans and vegetarians are really not any leaner than meat eaters when you really look at it. And this is oftentimes disturbing because we think that that is the case. But most of us are still overeating, partly because we're not getting this protein, fiber and water component correct to suppress our hunger. And so hopefully that helps the vegans and vegetarians. Mm -hmm. The other things I'll say about this is that when it comes to meat, well, this is just an aside for people who are morally concerned with eating animals and also a little bit more abreast of what's going on in the environment. One of the things is that our topsoil is being eroded yeah. very quickly. And it is, it is an environmental crisis that no one is actually even talking about. And one of the solutions to this is raising animals in a humane, natural way where you're rotating them on the crops so that they can repopulate um, the soil. And so if you are someone who's eating meat, um, you should be aware of this and be choosing animals that are raised humanely and are paying attention to these, you know, um, animals that are being raised in a way that repopulates the topsoils. Just sort of an aside that I wanted to make everyone aware of, but hopefully that addresses some of the issues around vegan and vegetarianism. And there are many, many people who do incredibly well on that diet. There are also many, many people who don't do well at all on that diet. And so you have to, you know, honor your own biochemistry. And then you also have to, you know, sort of integrate the moral concerns as well. Yeah. Yeah. I tried vegan. I tried vegetarianism and I, they just didn't work. And I really wanted to do it both for, for moral reasons and health reasons because of, you know, pollution in the ocean, what animals are fed, like all kinds of reasons in addition to the moral ones. And I, I tried for three months and I was doing it really well. Like I was working with a nutritionist. I was getting my nutrition in, but it just wasn't, it wasn't working for me. My thyroid went down. I had zero energy. I was hungry all the time. I, I was eating so many nuts just to try to fill myself up. And when I started introducing 
animal back into my diet, it was like the lights came back on and I was home again. So I've had to find that balance. And and I'm so glad you mentioned topsoil. I was actually at a dinner with um, Dr. Zach Bush this past weekend, and I, I love him. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he he's a good person for other people to follow as well. But he talks so much about how this is a major environmental emergency. Like the soil that all our plants are growing in is becoming not only void of nutrition, but possibly even toxic. And so we're out there thinking we're being healthy, eating kale, but if the soil it grew in was basically dead, then the nutritional value that is meant to be in that plant, that vibrancy, that frequency isn't there. So I think that's that's something that we all need to start paying more attention to because you buy organic and you eat healthy, but the 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 frequency and the nutrition in 2021 is so much different than 1995 or, you know, throughout a different year. And it's something that has me very, very concerned. And to the point where I'm like, I need to have my own garden and grow yeah. my own stuff at this point. hundred percent, hundred percent. That is so important. And, and by the way, you know, I don't know how much you travel over to Europe, but I, yep. I do quite a bit and you'll taste the difference. Totally. Now, now they have some of the issues that we're having too, It's but they're a little bit, mm-hmm. we're a little bit further along in this. And that's why if you eat a tomato in Italy, let's oh, say, yep. it, it tastes like a completely different tomato than the ones you get here in the United States. Now they're gonna have the same issue as well, but this is something we all should be abreast of. And while it's not perfect, you should be looking, if you're kind of thinking, hey, well, Jade, Christine, what should I be looking for? Look for sustainably raised animals. Mm-hmm. Um, now be, look for those labels. Now those labels are not perfect because they're not regulated, but it's better than uh, sort of conventionally raised. And so, and look for companies that do uh, sustainably raised things. Like, you know, one of my sponsors for my podcast is Paleo Valley. They do a lot of this sustainably raised and sustainably sourced animals. And so you can easily find this if you search for it, but it's gotta be on your radar. So hopefully Christine and I putting you this on your radar now will make us all kind of go back and say, okay, this is something I really should be concerned about because this is something that both meat eaters and vegans and vegetarians can really get together on. It is important for both. And actually the meat eaters choosing sustainably raised uh, animals uh, could play a huge role here because, you know, let's face it, your dollar matters. I mean, if you go back 20 years, Whole Foods wasn't a thing until we all started spending our money on organic produce and things like that. And now it's a huge thing. So we can do the same thing here. We just need to be aware of it. What's the difference between sustainably raised and humanely raised? Yeah, well, humanely raised is really about, you know, this idea that animals are being uh, killed uh, a a humane way and also are giving free range and free the ability Mm -hmm. to roam around and things like that. Mm -hmm. They're not in cages and things like that versus, you know, sort of the slaughterhouse sort of thing where they line these cows up and walk them Uh into – you know, and also have them, you know, penned up these chickens penned up and things like this. And the truth is it's tough, right, Christine, because a lot of these terminologies we use, they're not perfect. Like you could say, well, I'm getting free rage hens and they're still cooped up. They just have a certain amount of time out and about. But what we really want to do is pay attention and buy from the companies where the hens and the cows are actually living their natural lives 
and then being slaughtered in humane ways. And that is a little bit different terminology than just sustainably raised. It also is saying a little bit about sustaining the environment, not necessarily sustaining the animals. So yes, we want humanely raised animals that have, you know, can live a life that is mo most like the life they would be living if they were in wild circumstances. And we also want sustainably raised animals where, you know, the people raising these animals are also looking after the land so that land can keep producing food. Yeah. Well, money talks. We have to make, you know, these decisions for ourselves and, and express our decisions with our dollar, you know, and support the companies that are doing. Like, I'd much rather pay a little bit more because here's the way I look at it. I'd rather pay more for meat or wild salmon or whatever that is that I know the source. I know how it's sourced. I know it's sustainable. I know it's humane because I'm going to pay for it in medical bills down the road. Like the money I save on buying food that's not high quality, I'm going to pay for in medical bills down the road. That's how I look at it. So that's how I justify in my head paying more for really, really high quality food. And I think the more of us that do that to the extent that we can and start supporting the businesses that really are trying to make a difference, that's how we communicate you know, our values. So we could talk forever about that, but I want to pivot to metabolism and metabolic types. Could you briefly describe, I'm sure a lot of people know, but just what metabolism is um, from a medical point of view, and then what are different metabolic types and how do we know which one we are? Yeah. Well, the best way to think about metabolism is as a stress sensing and responding device. All it really is doing is looking out into the outside world and saying, what kind of stress am, am I under? What does the environment look like? What is the temperature like? What season am I in? What, what food availability is there? Is there danger out there? And then it's also looking inside the body and saying, what do my cells need? And then it's integrating these things. To simplify it, think of it as a stress barometer, right? It's basically measuring the stress out there and how much stress pressure is on the body. And then it's acting like a thermostat to get you back to balance. And so the metabolism, unlike what a lot of people say, it's not a calculator or a chemistry set. It's more like a thermostat. It is a responsive, adaptive, and reactive system. So it is always changing, always trying to get you back to balance. Now, when we talk about metabolic types or hormone types, in, in truth, there's no such thing in medicine or research as a metabolic type or a hormone type. However, this terminology is useful because we just talked about the idea of keeping your schmeck in check. And we also talked about the idea of the uniqueness of all of us in our physiology, psychology, preferences and practical circumstances. In other words, we are each unique. Uh, for example, if Christine and I each ate an apple and you all did as well, and then we were able to measure our blood sugar responses to that apple, that apple would react with our blood sugar, each of us in a unique way. So we have our, our metabolisms are as different on the inside chemically as we all are on the outside physically. And so we do absolutely have a type in that sense. And when we think about types, we want to be thinking about how does our metabolism, when we add a particular food, how does our uniqueness along with that particular food relate to metabolic outcome in terms of how hungry we feel or don't feel after cravings, energy, all the things we've sort of already talked about. So when we talk about metabolic type, there's lots and lots of different ways we could talk about that. So for example, there are fast and slow metabolizers of caffeine. 
Uh, you just heard Christine talk about how the fact that she doesn't get uh, headaches when she has cacao or cocoa, which are really two different things. Most of you probably know. Just briefly, the cacao is the raw plant. Cocoa is the cooked uh, seed and then it's pulverized. Um, but she's unique in that regard. A lot of people do get headaches from a cocoa and, and, or, and or cacao. Now that would tell you a little bit about her metabolic type. My brother, for example, I have the same roughly genetics as him. He is a slow oxidizer of caffeine. So if he drinks coffee, he gets wired. I can have coffee right before I go to bed and I can, I go to sleep. There are people who are, uh, you know, people who burn through sugar quickly and people who burn through sugar more slowly. And there's all other areas of gray in between. So when we talk about metabolic types, the best way to think about it is just this idea of how does my body respond when I add certain elements into my diet. Now, certainly some of us in the functional medicine field will give particular label, labels to things like, for example, a sugar burner or a fat burner or a mixed burner. Um, this basically tells you a little bit about what fuel this particular person's metabolism likes to run on. Certainly with women and hormone types, if, you, if you're a younger woman who's menstruating normally, then we can call you a, you know, maybe a hormone type one, sort of this, you know, normal young hormone type. However, if you're a woman who is dealing with estrogen dominance, that is like another hormone type. If you're a woman who's under stress, and uh, one of the first things that happens there is progesterone drops. So that's a particular hormone type. Female athletes oftentimes have low estrogen and progesterone looking a lot like menopause. That's a particular type. So these types are useful in, in so far as telling us what we may want to start with, right? If you're someone who's a sugar burner and doesn't do well with sugar, let's say, you may want to move towards a lower carbohydrate, lower sugar, lower starch diet as your first move to understand your metabolism. Now, the danger with talking about metabolic types and hormone types and things like that is what the human brain does whenever we give a label is it goes, oh, this is me, and it stops right there. Well, the, the whole benefit of a metabolic type or a hormone type is just to give you a starting place. It's not an ending place. It's a starting place so that you can then begin to say, okay, I can begin my process like this because my body seems to work in this particular way. But then I have to remember that there is no such thing as a sugar burner or a hormone type one. There's just a hormone type Jade or a metabolic type Christine, right? We're each unique in that. And our job is to find exactly what works for us. And that's going to be different for everybody. But these metabolic types and these hormone types can act as a good starting place, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it does. So let's just take the metabolic type of a woman who um, is perimenopausal in that phase of life. What would be some things that she would want to consider in terms of exercise and, and diet and movement? Yeah, this is really interesting, right? Because at perimenopause, what begins to happen is estrogen and progesterone, I like to describe them as two non-identical twin sisters. They are twin sisters because they are 100% reliant on each other, but they're non-identical because while they do have some overlap, they don't do the same things. And so estrogen is the sister that's sort of like the entrepreneur, athlete, go-getter. She likes to go and attack the world, right? Progesterone is the sister who's more like the motherly sister. She tends to worry a little bit. She wants estrogen to calm down so that estrogen doesn't get in trouble. Now, when these two are working together, 
it works beautifully because estrogen usually dominates in the first half of the menstrual cycle and then progesterone dominates in the second half of the cycle and everything works perfectly. Now at perimenopause, what ends up happening is there's times where the woman no longer ovulates. Well, if a woman doesn't ovulate, the corpus luteum never forms and that is the source of progesterone. So what a lot of women don't know is that progesterone level in women is low, just like a man's until ovulation. And then after ovulation, progesterone spikes. So if progesterone never spikes and the sister who is sort of the one who's the motherly sister and the one keeping estrogen out of trouble is no longer on board, is like sleeping in, so to speak, and estrogen is out there playing by herself, you'll find in perimenopause, estrogen being very volatile. Sometimes mm. she's high, sometimes she's low. She gets moody and cranky. She's missing her sister. This can create a lot of volatility in the brain and the body of a perimenopausal woman. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Estrogen and progesterone both help the body deal with cortisol and stress. You can kind of think of them like estrogen. Think about Joan of Arc. Estrogen is the suit of armor and progesterone is the shield and testosterone is the sword that Joan carries. Well, at perimenopause, the shield gets knocked out of Joan of Arc's hands and now she is more susceptible to stress. And so at perimenopause, one of the things that most women do, they start to see their body changing a little bit. So they start to double down and diet even more frequently or exercise even harder. Well, at this point in time, that's the exact wrong thing to do because the body can't handle that stress. And we have mm. to remember that either eating too little or too much or exercising too little or too much can be a stress. And it certainly can become a stress when progesterone is no longer around the way it was before. And so the key insight here is without progesterone, the female physiology is a little bit more reactive and sensitive to stress and cortisol. And therefore, the woman has to take a little bit more of the motherly role for herself, the role that progesterone would normally be playing. And so she has to get herself to ease up a little bit, to not diet so hard, to not overdo exercise, to spend more time, spend an extra hour in bed versus an extra hour on the treadmill, to really go get massage and meditation and be a little bit more motherly for herself to lower that stress. Mm -hmm. Now at menopause, what ends up happening is now estrogen drops as well. So estrogen and progesterone both help with stress, but the thing about estrogen is it also sensitizes the body to insulin. And so when at menopause, when estrogen drops as well, now you're dealing with an extra stressed physiology and a physiology that can't handle insulin as well. And so the big moves to make here is that perimenopause really got to focus on stress and at menopause have to focus even more on stress, but also a little bit more on insulin producing foods. Like perhaps you want to move at menopause to less of a calorie counting approach and instead start reducing those calories by controlling carbohydrates since they're the things that raise insulin the most. And so you can see that when you understand the metabolic type or the hormone type, you can start to make uh, plans that would work better than just a one size fits all diet, if, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. Okay. I might have to have you back and do a whole episode on hormones because I have about a gazillion questions <laughs> for you on this. I'm like, oh, so much to look forward to as I age. I can't wait. Um, I just got to get through the pregnancy and postpartum before I can think about anything else. Um, but I know that you have, well, another thing I want to talk about before I get into your programs just briefly is I love that you bust a lot of myths about exercise. Mm -hmm. One, we don't need to exercise as long as we think. 
And two, going for an hour walk is one of the one of the best things we can do for our body. Can you talk briefly about those things? Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, one of the things is it's remember we talked about the metabolism as a stress barometer. Well, eating too little or too much is a stress. Exercising too little or too much is a stress. So this is a, getting into what you were alluding to here. And so what we want to be thinking about is there's two types of uh, stress that the body can handle better. Either stress that is very gentle and very long, right? This would mm-hmm. be, you know, things like walking, right? You can do that for a very long time and it's not that stressful. Matter of fact, you could sit and walk and talk and drink your coffee and, you know, take your time. So you can do that for hours without much stress. So that is a very gentle type of thing that the body does not feel overly stressed with. However, if you're going to bump up the intensity, at that point, it has to be short-lived. And the body also does pretty well with that. Short-lived, high-intensity stress, the body can also recover from really easily. So it's the stuff in the middle, the very high-intensity, very long exercise, or the moderate-intensity, very long exercise that starts to to produce problems. And this is actually really interesting because what a lot of women will do, they've grown up with the idea that you want to do moderate-intensity cardiovascular exercise to get results. And the fact of the matter is exercise research is incredibly clear on this now. It simply does not work for the Mm -hmm. vast majority of women. And I'll give you a a recent study from 2017, I believe, that was published that basically took women. This was done on women between the ages of about 35 and 50 years old. And they told these women they had three groups and they said, group one, we want you to run on the treadmill 30 minutes every day, five days per week. Then they had another group that did that for 45 minutes a day, five days per week, and a third group that did 60 minutes, five days per week. And they told these women, do not change your diet at all. So what we would expect, if the metabolism works the way we all think, like a calculator, we would expect that these women would all lose weight because they didn't change their diet at all, at least consciously, and they were exercising a huge amount. What ended up happening in all these groups, 25% of those women lost weight, not as much as as what would be predicted. But what is scary is that 50% of those women lost no weight at all. And another 25% of those women actually gained weight as a result of that exercise. And when the researchers went back and looked to figure out why that happened, the reason was they could not control their diet. The actual exercise threw Schmeck, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings out of check, and these women made up the difference in the calories burned through exercise with extra food. Mm -hmm. And 25% of those women actually overate to a degree that actually caused them to not only wipe out the calorie deficit, but actually to create a calorie excess and they gained weight. And that is because of the stress of that type of exercise. Now we don't know for sure this would have to be studied and these studies have not been done, but I can tell you clinically, you do not see the same effect when you're doing very short duration, high intensity exercise, like 15 to 20 minutes of mixed metabolic conditioning, let's say, or very slow, long duration walking. And so what I have found clinically is A, that it is true that most women, some will, by the way, it's not all black and white in medicine. Some will absolutely lose weight if they start doing cardio. I will tell you this, if you're perimenopausal or menopausal, it's going to work even worse for you because you're more stress sensitive. So you're going to be probably better off moving to one of the other areas, either short duration, higher intensity, and or, and it's probably and, also walking, 
very slowly for longer periods of time. And what these things tend to do, the short intense exercise tends to raise human growth hormone, which a lot of people don't know this, but women in particular may be secreting more human growth hormone in response to high intensity exercise than men. And estrogen and human growth hormone have a beautiful synergy for fat burning. So that's a very powerful form of exercise for women. And secondly, walking is beautiful because it's the only form of exercise that lowers cortisol and sensitizes the body to insulin. Basically the same thing that estrogen and progesterone do. So these are two beautiful forms of exercise for women, if that makes sense. Yeah. And this is what I change to. I either go for an hour walk or I do a 20 to 30 minute hit cardio or weight training. That, and that's, that's it. <laughs> that's what I do. And it works beautifully and it's worked well in pregnancy too. And I feel energized most days. <laughs> I feel like my weight's really sustaining and moving nicely. And when I used to do, you know, I used to like run a 30 minute interval and then take an hour hit class or do an hour and a half power yoga and then like walk for a mile. I mean, I used to way, way over exercise. And although I might've been lean, it, my cortisol levels were completely out of whack, completely out of whack. And so I honestly think that changing my exercise program in the past four or five years is one of the reasons I was able to get pregnant. I don't think I would have gotten pregnant um, exercising like I was. I really, really don't. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting about, this is another thing about women when you're, um, a lot of women hate this when it talk, when it comes to fertility, but the, each woman is different, right? So what I have found with working with many women in fertility is that each woman has what I would call a different fat stat. So it's basically the female metabolism is far more sensitive and refined than a man because it it is the, the gender of child bearing in a sense. So it's looking and saying, how much fat do I have on my body and can I produce a baby? Now, medicine would make you think that that's a particular number, but it's actually a particular number for each woman. So some women start losing menses in the low 20% body fat. Other women can get down to 15% body fat Mm. and still be having menses and still get pregnant. It's different for every woman. And so as a woman, every woman has to honor that, that perhaps the body fat percent that your body likes to keep you fertile is much higher than you would like. And this is just the nature of the beast, so to speak. Yep. Yep. When I gained weight, I, my period was regular and I ovulated regularly. That was, that was what happened. And although it was difficult for my mind because I was living in LA and used to a certain look, I was like, oh, this is so much more healthy. So I'm glad we're talking about this. And like I said, I could go on for an hour about hormones and women and all this kind of stuff. So I might have to have you come back and break this down for us even more. But I know that people are going to want to learn more from you. Can you tell us about the programs people can take and about your book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for me, you can find me, by the way, I'm online uh, on social media. We're all kind of hanging out on social media now at JTita is where to find me. Um, My website is jtita.com. Now, if you're thinking, hey, Jay, do you have any programs that I could get that are off the shelf? Probably the one that's most applicable to this discussion is one called Metabolic Renewal, which to my knowledge, I think is the first female specific exercise and diet system that really addresses individual women at different stages of their life and individuals, uh, individual women, period. So basically what it does is help say, where are you in your hormonal stage? Here's where you might want to start. And by the way, here's how you find your individual Mm. sort of hormonal type. And it is a diet and exercise system that's called metabolic 
renewal. I have several books, uh, Christine, but really those books you can find on um, Amazon. But I, I know you're an author as well. And I'll tell you what, uh, publishing books is really tricky because those yes. past books are you know, they're what I would call diet books, and they are useful um, for people. But my latest book is called Next Level Metabolism, and it comes out in a few months in January. And for those of you listening who are just like, Jade, I really like this approach. I really would like to you know more. And is there a book that you have? I would either get Metabolic Renewal, which there's a book associated with that, or the, the book that's coming out uh, in about two months called Next Level uh, metabolism. And this time around, I opted uh, not to publish with a major publisher. Yeah, I won't simply get either. <laughs> because, yeah, simply because, you know, what ends up happening for those of you who yeah. are wondering why Christine and I are making that decision is just that you lose a lot of the ability to do what you want to do, to name it right. what you want to. It, it just kind of uh, goes off the rails a little bit. Now, I'm incredibly grateful that I was able to publish. So I'm not saying it was all bad. I'm just saying I've kind of moved past that and want to do something a little bit different. So that's yeah. why I'm kind of explaining that a little differently. So hopefully that makes sense. No, to totally, totally. I totally get it. So everybody, I'm going to have Jade back January, February. We can talk about his new book. So if you have questions, um, hit me up on Instagram and I'll start, you know, it, Jade, if that's okay with you, I'm just volunteering you to come uh, oh, back. Oh, absolutely. I love, I always love hanging with you. Because <laughs> there's so many things we didn't get to. So hit me up with your questions. I'll save them. We'll have you back when the book comes out January, February before, before my daughter comes and we'll talk more about metabolism and all, and all maybe dive back into hormones a little bit. Cause you're just a wealth of information. Um, you're, you speak from your heart and your head, Jade. I have so much respect for you. You're very service oriented. You've helped me during times when I reached out with, with, with asking for nothing in return. And I just want to acknowledge that you really embody to me the archetype of a true physician. So thank you. Yeah. And you know what, Christine, same for you. I just, I love what you teach. I love you as a human and I'm just incredibly grateful to have these conversations. So thank you, my friend. My pleasure. 